Hey, this is Steve Walton. You are here at Nightbird Studio at Sunset Marquee, where we were just joined by Joe Elliott, lead singer of Def Leppard, talking about his new project, Down and Outs. Dude, this is Joe Elliott. He's telling stories about performing with David Bowie, about being at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You do not want to miss this one. So, so for you, I, it's funny because you and I have talked so many times over the years. I know that you have a shit ton of turning point moments, but yeah. is there one that really stands out to you as you know being one of those pivotal moments that led you to where you are today? Well, yeah, I can name. I can almost walk you to the spot where it happened, and it was the schoolyard at Hunters Bar Junior School, 1972, when. Um, all the young dudes charted. And I'd been telling people for 18 months, which when you're 11 years old is a long time. 18 months to you and I now. Is, yeah. When you're back then, it's like, it's a long, long time. You know, it's a decade, you know, for us. That uh, they're missing out on this band, you know, and because they hadn't had a hit. and But I was hearing them on Radio Luxembourg, Radio Caroline, all that kind of stuff. You're hearing stuff from the Brain Capers albums and... You know, Mad Shadows, Wildlife, all this kind of stuff. And I was listening to them on Island Compilation Records. Where there'd be one song with 24 other artists. And then they finally had this hit, and it was All the Young Dudes, which is, to me has always been like the launch, pa launch pad of everything. For me, it's the, it's the song of our generation. It is, to me, still my favorite ever song, best song I've ever heard. Everything about it worked. It's by far the best song on the album, which just goes to show that the fact that Bo the fact that Bowie wrote it gave it its identity. But he spent a lot longer producing and recording that song than he did the other nine. So that's why it worked. You know, they didn't have a budget, but they got it right on that one song, and it resonated with this 11, 12 year old kid, and and as he did with a ton of people in the specifically in the UK. And it's almost like, uh, there's, you know, you've heard the story that everybody that bought the first Velvet Underground album formed a band. Well, most people that heard all the young dudes kind of much either followed a band or joined one. Because you can get the same story from vastly different people. You know, Susie Sue, John Lydon, you know, Adam Ant, me, the Spandows, the Duran Durans, all that kind of stuff. It didn't matter what kind of music you ended up making, but that song just started a whole new thing even though Bolin had had hits a year before that song kind of cemented this whole new what became the UK glam rock movement which a lot of it was bricklayers in drag no doubt but there were some some phenomenal artists coming through like Roxy Bowie Bolin um, Sparks a couple of years later you had Cockney Rebel who were very art rock and, and then you know for the meat and potato stuff that we all still love and, and enjoyed with Slade and Sweets and that kind of stuff, you know. And then Queen came out of that as well. Um, very sophisticated. But it, for me, it would have been, uh, which is now what, 49 years ago. That when well, I 72, right? So 47. Out. 47 years ago, sorry. But yeah. you know what's interesting about that is you listed all those bands that you know would tell you that they started from all the young dudes. You mentioned Spandau's, Duran, Susie, Def Leppard was the only band in there that would be considered "quote unquote" hard rock. Mm -hmm. Oh so, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting that you kind of did. We're also have the only band from up north. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like we're looking at you know we weren't art rock. We weren't blessed with colleges of art that we'd come through and all this kind of stuff. It's it's just timing, you know. I mean, there, there's 
a lot of it is nonsense, but they always say Birmingham because of the founder, foundries is why Sabbaths sound the way they do and priests sound the way they do. But it didn't affect Robert Plant that way from Wolverhampton just down the road or bunches of other people. ELO didn't come out sounding like they would listen to a foundry all night. But <laughs> Yorkshire, Sheffield, we, we had the choices, you know, and, and the thing is because we weren't influenced by uh, peer pressure that you might do if you lived in London, oh, you can't like that. We did. We liked it all. If the, it's the Miles Davis thing. There's only two types of music, good or bad. And so as a as a 12-year-old kid, it didn't matter to us whether we were listening to David Cassidy, David Essex, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, or C-Rex Jethro Tull. If I liked the song, I recorded it onto my TIAC quarter-inch reel-to-reel because they didn't have a cassette player <laughs> at the time. <laughs> Nice. I love that. So, so what, what are a couple of the songs that you remember being, cause it's funny, like there's an image that is associated with that idea of sitting there waiting for the song you want to come on the radio and you would sit there at the recorder exactly with your fingers there at the, at the ready, at the record button, you know, and it was such a, uh, an image of childhood for people of a certain age. Yeah. So for you, what are a couple of the songs that you remember just sitting it, there? It and- wasn't just the radio as well. I mean, some of us were smart enough to have a microphone, which we would put in front of the TV because we'd read the TV <laughs> Times and said, on, on tonight's Top of the Pops are David Bowie with his brand new single. And da, 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 so, okay, so you know what? Sometimes between 7 to 7.30, it's coming on. So you might end up with a stupid DJ introducing it and back announcing before it's finished but you got the the majority of the song and you couldn't afford to go out and buy it this week or whatever you know um songs that I would sit down and rec- well we what I used to do is I'd, I'd actually record the entire we used to have a show called the, the top top 20 show every Sunday afternoon so I would record the whole thing and if there was like tie yellow ribbon I would just fast forward to it you know because it, it's easier than sitting there but um, I remember a bunch of things. We used to listen to the John Peel show because when BBC first went um, stereo, that was a big deal. You know, why, you know, and you put them as far apart as possible, which in fairness these days is kind of stupid. <laughs> um, I remember recording, I, I don't know why I remember this, but I specifically remember recording the session version of Bridge of Size by Robin Trower. Which has since been released as a bonus track on the, you know, expanded CD version of it, because they used to do sessions for the BBC. These artists, and I remember, I, and I didn't know anything about Robin Trower. Only thing I knew was like, when I heard it, it went sounds like Jimi Hendrix to me, you know, and that's all I remember. But it keeps the novelty. My dad said you can use it, and he wired the radio into the tape recorder. So I was just off with the fairies. <laughs> I never went out to play. I just sat in the corner of the room, like you know, all kind of loner. But it was fun. I totally enjoyed it. See, it's so funny because one of the things I really love about this particular format is to to go back and revisit the stuff and you figure out how much it influences still, you know, what you do to this day. But it's also fascinating. I mean, it's funny when you think back on, you know, because again, we've talked so many times over the years, but when you think back to recording those BBC sessions, to, you know, so I would imagine, you know, when Def Leppard started doing your first sessions, that was one of those things that was just oh absolutely when kind we, of fucking mind blowing when we when we we did our EP self financed EP which got us the record deal and one, while we were still waiting to make the album it's like well we've got to get them to do something so other than the odd gig that we did here and there we got taken down to Maida Vale in London and we did sessions for um, we never did one for John Peel but we even though he was the first guy to ever play on his on his show but we did sessions for Andy Peebles and we did sessions for Tommy Vance on the Friday Rock show. 
And I and I remember, you know, it was like when we played certain venues that I'd read about other artists playing. It's like I'm standing where so and so used to stand. I mean, as a music fan, that was a big deal. Now, there's a lot of people in bands will not admit to that. They actually do feel it, but it's not cool to actually say it out loud. I don't have that <laughs> cool filter. I'm afraid. I'm like the first to go, dude. Can you believe this? <laughs> Prime example. I first gig I ever saw was. T-Rex at the Sheffield City Hall in 1971 on the Electric Warrior Tour, which I've been told recently, I think it was October, November, maybe. Um, and cut nine years, we're playing there. And I stood where Mark Boland was stood, looking back at where I was stood watching Mark Boland standing where I was standing. Okay, you, you with yeah. me? And I remember just, it was... there life flashes before you when you're about to die moment <laughs> i just nine years of rewind this little kid that was so like that was the that was a, a moment too the first time i ever saw an audience i walked this the swing doors you know flew open i went through and the room is just full of people going completely nuts they were just dandruff everywhere head shaking <laughs> and head banging and girls screaming and guys punching the air and it was like this is, and he was playing jeeps as I walked in because I missed the first like two minutes, and it was just mind blowing to see all these people. And it's only a two thousand seater, and when I stood on the stage looking back at me, going, "Wow, this place has shrunk," because <laughs> I thought it was like you know Madison Square Gardens as a as an eleven year old kid, twelve year old kid stood right at the back. But when I stood looking at where I was, I, I could have almost spat to where I was stood <laughs> from the front of the stage. It was crazy, but that that was another one of those wow moments for me. It's funny, because I think that's one of the things that's cool as we talk, and this ties in very nicely with Down and Outs, you know, is the fact that you don't lose that sense of fandom. So even of late, as you, you know, like for example, we talked a great length before the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame about your fandom of Roxy Music. Mm. And we joked about the fact that you should be the one to induct them, yeah. you know? But that thing of like, again, so for you, I'm sure that it was such a cool thing to just be there with heroes. By the way, because I haven't talked to you since then, did you get to talk to Brian Ferry there? Uh, no, I didn't. I was, uh, Manzanera, yes, and Mackay. Um, I was really bummed that Paul didn't make it, Paul Thompson. I know Paul Thompson. Um, but he was ill, so he couldn't make it. You know, So I didn't see Ferry. He, uh, nobody did. He just magically appeared on stage <laughs> and then disappeared like a ghost. He was never in the corridors. You know, but Because we had Ian and Brian in our dressing room. Uh, Andy Mackay had played on Mot, Mot songs. He played on All The Way From Memphis and, and a couple of other things on the Hoople album. So they were kind of... And, and when we did All The Young Dudes for the... You know, well, it wasn't the all-star jam, but it was like the kind of, you know, the the all-star encore, if you like. Uh, Manzanera was up doing backing vocals, so that was kind of neat, you know. But no, I never saw Ferry. But um, I was really, um, I was very impressed with Simon and uh, and John's uh, induction of Roxy Music. I thought they nailed it, absolutely nailed it. And they definitely deserve that more because the music is obviously more leaning that way. Uh, it made total sense that they did it. But I really enjoyed their induction and I really enjoyed uh, Roxy's set because f as a, from an American point of view it must have been extremely difficult because when they did like you know in every home uh, every dream home a heartache and it's just like 60 minutes of white lights and weird noises <laughs> it wasn't exactly Avalon which is pretty much where most Americans came on board so it was like for an English guy I'm going this is nuts there's 60,000 <laughs> people going what the hell is this you know? but I'm like going come on this is brilliant you know and it was great it was really cool 
And so for you, it's so funny to think about then, you know, your turning point moment started with all the young dudes, and then you are fucking singing it on stage at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, I mean, you, that's going full circle. That's what I mean about that song being the, it was the most appropriate thing, and everybody in our, in our band got that. And that's why everybody else wanted to be up there, because it also in its own way affected Susanna Hoffs um, there was much old respect for that song from Miami Steve and from the guys out of Argent and from um, Manzanera you know um, they all kind of got it because it's that it's that it's ground zero for that kind of music you know um, and it was it was there was no arguments to say if we can get Ian we'll, and there, everybody's like yeah are you kidding me <laughs> and we've done it with him so I've done it with him loads of times he's done it with us on stage now twice or three times so I mean it's like it's not unusual we did it at the you know the Freddie Mercury tribute gig there was me and Phil were up there with Bowie Ronson and, and Ian and Queen I mean it doesn't get any better than that really does it mm. think about it yeah, you're looking along the line there's me and Phil and Brian May singing the chorus and as I'm looking down there's Mick Ronson Ian Hunter David Bowie and then you know <laughs> Roger Taylor John Deacon I'm thinking yep yeah I'm actually there's three I... minutes of my life that I'll never waste <laughs> you know wow in all that in all the career high, I mean it's funny because you know I, I think for most people it's hard to pick those those defining moments I imagine for you that's got to be. It's hard theory. to remember them because they're just <laughs> coming and just popping into my head now. It's like first of all it was Dills. Oh wait a minute, then it was T Rex at the City Hall. Oh, and then it was a Freddie Mercury gig. There's you know there's been so many, and I don't ever take it for granted. But sometimes you just lock them away in a little box in your brain, and they just come out randomly. You know, luckily you're you're kind of fishing, <laughs> and these things are coming out because they're hungry. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's for me, it's fascinating because it's funny. I think about those, you know, like, I mean, for me, I once got to go to one of the parties that Prince was doing at his house when he was doing these parties in L.A. And, you know, he and Stevie Wonder jammed at four o'clock in the morning for 150 people. That's one of those moments that you just simply can't yeah. forget, you know. But what I love about this is it's funny because I mentioned before we came on talking about the Vegas show, which I got to see and how much I enjoyed that. And what's really cool is that, you know, obviously in a year when you guys are inducted into the Hall of Fame, it's one of those things where, you know, there's a great appreciation for everything happening with Def Leppard and you're enjoying it. But when I talk with every artist who is, you know, it doesn't matter what they're doing. For every artist, it's important to be looking forward as well. And so I'm sure for you, it's such a nice thing right now to be sort of, you know, taking the deserved Def Leppard victory lap, doing the Vegas shows. But then you have down and outs, yep. and it's new material. So you're not simply because for every art, it's it's great, but it's hard to just do the victory lap. It gets boring because you've already done it. Yeah, that's the thing about victory laps is they're great, but the, the novelty of waving the flag to a standing <laughs> ovation sooner or later it's not a standing ovation when it just peters out. You know, um, the Vegas shows were, were were great fun because we you saw one, we did twelve, we didn't ever do the same one twice. We changed things out. We did mini iron dry sets and then mini pyromania sets and whole. Obviously, it's always a pretty major hysteria set, no matter where we play. And doing the acoustic thing in the middle was a really nice breather. It gave the set like three dimensions, start, middle, and an end. And that really was what we wanted to do. You know, that's the place to do it. So much so that we were like going, it'd be great to take it on tour. But I don't know that it would. I'm not sure it would work the same way. But that's, you see, when you've only got one load in and one load out, you can bring all the gear you like, <laughs> you know, which is difficult to do in, a, in certain venues, you know, because... You've got to strip it down, and then you can't get it physically to the next town in time. You know, so that was a great thing about Vegas, and you know, from a from a selfish point of view, twenty seven nights in the same bed, hallelujah. <laughs>
You come to visit us, we don't go to visit you. And yeah. that was, but it's an event. They, they don't just come for us. They've spent 22 hours doing other things, maybe a little bit of sleep, but slot machines, love, absinthe, whatever, walking the strip, just doing things. And then they were the icing on the cake, maybe. And I'm okay with that. You know, Vegas is a trip. And I, it's great to be part, it's just a, one cog in many cogs in that town. And, it, you know, when you look at the history of it, how it's how it's turned itself around. You know, even when we first went there in 1983, I think it was, just to do a regular in-and-out gig, I just missed Dean Martin by two tickets. They were literally two left. By the time I tracked our tour manager down to get some money, they'd gone. You know, <laughs> but that's what it was. It was Wayne Newton. It was where, it was the elephant's graveyard. Now it's a totally sexed up town. It's Pirates of the Caribbean and Aerosmith and Kiss and us. And, you know, you've got Britney and, and, and got Elton John and uh, there's all sorts of people there. And yet Wayne Newton came out at Life is Beautiful. I love the fact, though, I think that's really cool yeah. to continue to have that, that mix. And it's funny for me just as a fan, like when I'm there, I love seeing the Sinatra-esque shit because to me he's, you know, one of the... Iconic. He was the first rock star. Oh yeah, there's no doubt. I wouldn't. I, I'm not knocking it. I'm no, saying no, that's no, I all know, yeah. there was. Yeah. And now you have every aspect of it. You know. No, what I'm saying. I is went it... to see Chris Angel. It's a rock show without any. Well, th without a band. You know, he's basically the lead singer of Nine Inch Nails. In, <laughs> when you, but it's a great show. I went to see Love Again for the second or the third time. And you know, I mean, that catalogue of songs, I could be there all day, every day. Yeah. Never get bored, you know. No, I, I was just saying I think that's the cool thing is to have that mix now. Mm. You know, because I think it's cool to not lose all of the history. Yeah. Like I mean, here in LA, you know, we're here at Nightbird Studios downstairs in Marquee. Dude, look at all the shit around mm -hmm. us on Sunset that is going the way of the dinosaur. Yeah, absolutely. As someone who grew up in LA, it's well, kind of Well, they haven't found you out yet because yeah. you're down in the basement, <laughs> so you're good for a while, you know. Yeah. If you've got your head poked up above <laughs> ground, it's just like one of those, it's like that game with the hammer, the, the gophers and the, the mallet, you know. It's like, I think we've still got the three main clubs up there, the Roxy, the Rainbow and... and the Whiskey, and yeah. the Whiskey, but yeah. how long for? Yeah, you know? uh, hopefully, yeah. The Troubadour's still down on Santa Monica, right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, they've got the four big little ones, if you like. Yeah. But Gazaras is gone and everything else is going. And House of Blues, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. The House of Blues, I was there when it went. And the tattoo parlors are probably getting closed down and they're all, everything's sitting to Fred Siegel, which is all <laughs> well and good. But, it, you know, you keep reading these. Nobody wants to admit to nostalgia, but I keep reading these articles about the Sunset Strip and no matter how much they try and dress them up, they miss it. You know what's so they funny about that? They miss the 70s. By the way, and we'll come off this in a second. You know, the Rodney Bingheimer stuff and whatever, yeah. you know. There, there was an article that came out about the fact they were going to uh, possibly tear down the Viper Room for a new building. As it turns out, they're, it's staying in some new configuration. I don't know what the hell's that. But it was so funny because, look, man, I can say this as someone who grew up in LA. The Viper Room's a shithole. It was always a shithole, mm. you know? My God, though, people, you would have thought that they were like tearing down the freaking Liberty Bell or something. Yeah. The way that people just lost their minds about like, oh, dude, when was the last time you went to the fucking Viper Room that you're sitting here screaming, you cannot Oh, I've been for 12 years, but you can't tear it down. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's it's because it's you're taking away their childhood. Yeah. Or their teenage years or their early 20s, you know. You're taking away where it all got built. This is, these are the building blocks of their future life. So they can tell stories to people going, oh, you have no idea what it was like to be in the right house. I mean, I I do know what it was like to be in the right house, but I don't know what it was like to be in when Keith Moon was in it, or John Bonham, or 
Jimmy Page or, or Robert Plant. Or, or you know, I mean, I, I remember wandering the corridors looking for Little Richard. And every time I miss him by like four hours. <laughs> so did you ever meet him or no? No, never. Never. And I never will. But I've I've spent time in there with Justin Timberlake and Chris Rock and, and, and Kid Rock and, and just, you know, the most bizarre people. <laughs> and it's great, you know. And so that's my version of what 74 was. He's nowhere near as good. You know, I mean, there's nobody, you can't compete with something yeah. that there was no comparison. You know, it's like everything that we do, people can say, oh, it must be wonderful. But it is because we can say, well, we just wanted to follow in the footsteps of the Beatles and the Stones. They couldn't say that. There was nothing for them to follow. They started it all. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's, it's a totally different headspace. Yeah, it's funny, like when you go up to the upstairs room at the Rainbow and you see the inscription on the wall of the Hollywood vampires. I still geek out over that, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, well, who wouldn't? You know, that was the first place I ever set foot, uh, um, other than the airport and the hotel. We checked into the Chateau Mormon. It was the 18th of May, 1980, when we landed in America for the first time. We were going to open for Pat Travis at the Santa Monica Civic. And we said, we're off to the Rainbow. And we went upstairs <laughs> And there was nobody there because it was seven o'clock at night. And we There's went usually in. usually no one up there. And the barman, there was four girls, classic American 1980 girls over in the corner. And me and Steve Clark walked up to the barman and he said, can I help you boys? And he <laughs> said, yeah, can we get two, um, two vodka and oranges, please? And he says, you mean a screwdriver? <laughs> and I just blurted out, listen, mate, if I want a screwdriver, I'll go to a hardware store. <laughs> Because I'd never heard of a screwdriver as a drink. It was a screwdriver, you know. A, in England, it's a vodka and orange. We're pretty simple that way, you know. But of course, this kerfuffle with these accents, all of a sudden, hey, you guys English? <laughs> yep. Are you in a band? Yep. <laughs> Boom. Hello, America. You know what I mean? It was wonderful. But yeah, this victory lap thing, you know, it's, um, it's, it's what it is. We're in a temporary holding orbit because we're not done. We're not going out there... Um, with the greatest of respect, you know, maybe Fleetwood Mac will make another record and the Eagles will make another record, but they're, or sure, <laughs> may make another record. Uh, Elton John, whatever, you know, these acts that are well within their rights to just keep playing live because that's what people want. They don't really want new music. They've been, that's the way it's been this entire century. I remember hearing a radio broadcast that Elton John did for the BBC when he was playing his new album and he actually said, right, hear those words that you don't want to hear. Here's a song from my new album and the whole crowd burst out laughing. (laughs) But he was kind of, making humour, dark humour out of a fact. That well, it's, I, it's unless you go down to a, an open mic night in a place this size where you can psychologically, without even knowing it, walk in knowing you're probably not going to hear anything you've ever heard before. You don't have that headspace when you go into Staples Centre to watch Paul McCartney. You're praying he doesn't play anything new. You want Elder Skelter and Can't Buy Me Love and Long and Winding Road and Live and Let Die and Ban on the Run and I could go on for hours, couldn't yeah. I? Because that's what it is, you know. You could. I, I saw him at Dodger Stadium for I totally hours, understand yeah. that. And then if you do, do get a new song every 40 minutes, we can live with that. And what you'll see, if you're a real fan, you'll stay. And if you're a so-so fan, you go to the bar or buy a T-shirt when that new song well, comes What's so on. funny, I don't remember now what the hell the show was. I'd have to go back and look, but I actually remember writing this in a review recently about the fact that, you know, it's a testament to how good the like how good the band was that the audience stayed for all the new songs. Yeah, but it's true. Yeah. yeah, when you can get a band to stay for. But it's funny for you guys. Then you know, let's take this to Vegas, and then we'll come into Down and Out and talk about. I'm sure though for you, it's also fun 
to be able to, like you say, you did the acoustic thing, you played songs that you haven't played in years. So they kind of become fresh again for you and it oh, revitalizes yeah. it for you, I'm sure. You see, what you've got now in the year 2019, probably for the last two or three years and going on for the next four or five, we have yardsticks to judge against, which we didn't have back in 1983. We didn't know if any of these songs had legs, but we do now know that they've got legs. And we also know that it's not just Photograph and Rock of Ages. There are people literally on their knees going, please play Die Hard the Hunter. And we so, okay, fine, your wish is my command. And we can look back on our career knowing that because of the way life is now from a musical point of view, there is no nostalgia anymore. You're not old at 32. In fact... There's a there's a cred factor of like if you're still doing this into your seventies, now you're even cooler than you were in your fifties. You look at Aerosmith, look at the Stones, look at McCartney, uh, you know. In and if God bless him, if he hadn't died, um, what's his name? Uh, who was the miserable old sod that died at like eighty two years old? Uh, Leonard Cohen. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody <laughs> thought he was God Almighty. You know, because he was still up there. Charles Aznavour passed away just before he was about to go on stage at ninety two. Ian Hunter is eighty, and Mott have got gigs lined up. You know, um, it's it's not. There's no stigma about age that there was in the seventies. Or no, the it's, 80s. it's the exact. It's if you were starting off at the age of twenty six, you had three heads. Yeah, KT Tunstall put her first album out at thirty one. Oasis were in their thirties, really, pretty much when they really started. To Ian Hunter was thirty when he made the first Mott album in nineteen sixty nine, and they had to hide that for like twenty years because if anybody ever found out, it'd be big trouble. Because it's like, you can't start that age. He's probably finished. This, the Beatles split when they were 27, 28. He started at the age of 30. It's That's irrelevant now. You know what I mean? So when we pick songs, when we did things like, uh, when we did the acoustic thing, we did uh, Have You Ever, we did Let Me Be The One, which he'd never done live, but he's from 2002. We did We Belong Off The Last Album, which is only four years old, which made us feel great, you know? <laughs> Um, and things like Die Hard and, and Mirror Mirror, and Billy's Got a Gun, which we hadn't played live in 25 years. It was a breath of fresh air. And the great thing was, because this band is that good, it took us about seven days to brush the cobwebs off the lot of them. Because it's in your DNA. Well, I would imagine as well, though, it's funny, because again, when you get to do that, you know, it makes it easier to go up and play Photograph and Rock of Ages and pour some sugar on me because you're getting to do it as well. It's like Clapton revamping Layla because he said, I'm going to have to play this song every day for the rest of my life, so I'm going to do something to make it fresh. Yeah. So for you guys, I'm sure when you get to do the stuff that you want to do or stuff you haven't done in 25 years or that you've never played, you're feeling good, you're excited, you're invigorated. So it's not to say that you, you don't are, want to play those songs, but it's like, again, they, they sort of become fresh But as you well. are on this weird knife age where you're never quite satisfied and you never get it right because when we do sugar or photograph unless somebody's ill we can't really get it wrong uh, you can people slip in or pools of oil that drip out of the lights in the in the in this roof somebody throws something on stage it's, you get a distraction you can screw the song up but generally speaking you don't when you're doing the new songs you get to do it for the 12th night the last one, and you go, I think we just about nailed it. <laughs> you're kind of bluffing your way, and you're just going, please don't forget the words. You know, you're on a knife edge, which is, that's where that, that comes from, that adrenaline of like, this, you know, you just hope you pull it off. And would anybody in the audience know the difference between the first and the last version? No, because I think it's an internal feeling that you just feel more comfortable doing it. You have an outward look that nobody can see the difference. It's like a shell that you put up. But inside, your heart's going like this the first time you do it, and it's kind of settled down second, third, fourth time. You know, so 
I don't think there's ever a right or a wrong, but uh, it is great to do it. Having said that, when we go on tour, uh, pick any year you like, when we get to do Sugar Rock, Rock of Ages photograph in front of 22, 30,000 people, trust me, never gets old. It's never a problem. It may be a problem in rehearsals when it's just you and the crew and a wall and a... <laughs> really but once you put audience in front of it and you realise especially if you're a fan yourself put yourself in their shoes that's me watching Brown Sugar which Jagger and Richards could easily go oh god not again but they don't because they know that the 70,000 people wherever it is are going bonkers because that's what they've come to hear well it's not only that it's also I would imagine as well and it's funny as you know we were talking about the longevity thing to me the best example of this is always Nick Cave I'm a huge fucking Nick Cave fan Nick Cave never had any mainstream success now he's doing the forum because he's in his 60s and he's one of the greatest fucking live shows in the world. But, you know, he didn't become cool until his 50s or 60s. You in know? England, he had a hit duet with, with Kylie Minogue and all the Kylie fans are going, <laughs> who's the big dude? Who's the big, tall, black, ugly guy? Who's this Nick Cave guy? And it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Well, the best is, wait, no, this, funny, this came up recently, it's so fucking, you know, I mean, that's one thing that exists today, and, you know, I was joking about this with someone the other day, the old man rant, but I will tell you, when it comes now to people and the music stuff, those those things that came out after Post Malone did the, the track with Ozzy, and the Post Malone fans were like, who's this Ozzy guy? That's so cool of Post Malone to give this old guy a chance. The same and thing I'm just like, Kanye West. Fuck you. Like, just I, fuck saw, yeah. I saw pa, pa, Kanye West fans put up post, how great that he's giving that guy, Paul McCartney, a leg up. Uh, you're just like, someone just, just smack you upside the head. I don't care, you know? You, you but just, they see, we live in pockets. I mean, we do. We live in pockets. This is how I can walk through an airport dressed like this and maybe one person knows who I am because they live in pockets. Now, you know, my fans would maybe watch Flavor Flav walk through with an alarm clock around his neck and not know who he was. You know what I mean? So we all live in pockets. It's it's okay. It just, if you get too precious about that, that's that's a bit of an ego problem for Maybe the, for the, the artist, but as a fan? Yeah. No, it's not okay to not know who the fuck Ozzy Osbourne is. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a little weird, yeah. I agree. <laughs> but all this being said, now, down and out, so are you going to tour for this at all? Because it's the first time that it's new material. Yes, it you is. Know? So it's, it's, it's all new material except for one song. We cover White Punks on Dope by the but, Tubes, yes. of course, you know, which was kind of the first thing we said we were going to do anyway, and then the, the songwriting came after that. Um, here's the problem with playing live. Everybody has a mothership that's like extremely busy. Mine, we don't need to go over. We know what we're doing. The choir boys are really busy. Vixen are quite busy. And the Wayward Sons, which is Phil Martini's home band, if you like the drummer, they're just about to drop a new album in October. So I'm putting a diary together. And every time, you guys, I put a big red cross <laughs> where we're not capable of doing anything and it's getting pretty full right now so we are looking um there might be a hole before we start next summer for us to do some festivals or something like that in europe doing an american show is going to be really difficult um purely because it's it's the logistics of getting everybody to the one place you know she lives in florida she'd be easy to get anyway <laughs> chuck her on a jet blue flight and we'd be there um it's getting the rest of the guys in and visas and this kind of stuff is awkward the uk is a little easier um, but at the same time, it's more the scheduling that's a problem, so I'm not getting overly panicky about that or worried about it or even disheartened and disappointed. I'm more happy that this thing is, I'm about to give birth. I'm up in the stirrups, the nurses are either <laughs> side with the mask, 
you know, and I'm ready to just pop this thing out because it's been gestating now for six or seven years and we've literally attacked it bit at a time whenever we've had holes in our mothership schedules, you know. Well, it's so interesting. I mean, at what point did you, was there one song early on? You mentioned you covered White Punks, White Punks on Dope first, right? Which is such a classic. Well, we didn't, we didn't cover it. We actually recorded it pretty much last. But when we were discussing the third album, we were still considering covers. And this is going back four years ago, five years ago. But it was never going to be Mott again. So we were going through all the songs that we might want to do. And White Punks on Dope was the one that everybody just went, we have to do this. So that was always just back burner. But once I kind of started writing, um, and I was writing on the piano, so I was coming up with songs that I knew, that there's no point in me playing this at Sav and Phil, Viv. They're just going to go, well, it's, no. <laughs> it's, just, you know, maybe give it to Elton, but no, no. And uh, I just had these songs that I thought they needed to be heard. I wanted them to be heard, but they weren't, they weren't written with Def Leppard in mind. So once I got that on the go, the idea of doing a third covers album just got totally elbowed. And I said, I played the demos to the guys when we did the last tour, 2014. So we're going back five years. Um, and they were like, there's nothing wrong with these. So just call us when you need us. And that's literally how we did it. I said, right, we're ready to go. I've got, I sent in the demos. I said, this is what I think we should be doing. They went, well, we're in. So Phil the drummer did all the drums in London, shedded a bass at home in Florida, bam, from Dogs and More, her husband, recorded it all, sent it over. We put it all into Pro Tools, just like this thing you've got here. Um, and then I brought the guys over. So Griff, Paul, and Keith, the keyboard player and two guitarists who are in England, they were easy. They're just a 30 minute flight in the come. I've got all the guitars. They didn't need to bring anything other than a toothbrush. And we started picking away at these songs and we'd do two or three days bang up as much as we could, then me and Ronan, the producer, would engineer it all and tidy it up, and then we'd see where we stand and then call them back a month later for two or three more days, and we'd pick at it like that. And I've, you know, it's funny, it sounds like, well, it's, it's not going to have any heart and soul when you do a record like that, but that's not necessarily true. I've been reading quite often about the way that Exile on Main Street was put together, and it was pretty much the same way. <laughs> and that's one of, you know, it's the, it's the album that people think is the Rolling Stones album, you know. So it's the fact that the songs were there, and their heart and soul was into doing this. The heart and soul breathes through it because of the effort they put in. The fact that we didn't play it all in one room is totally irrelevant. Most records are never done that way. No, I've never it, done a record like that in my life. Actually, we did one, Slang. But the, re the rest of them have all been, you do your bit to get it as good as you can. And these songs stand up no matter how they're recorded, you know. Cool. Well, we got to wrap up in a minute. But before we do, I, I, I'm curious because I think that, you know, oftentimes there'll be a song that's kind of a jumping off point for a record. That's why I was asking about White Pugs on Dope. But for you as a writer, was there one song early on that made you realize like, okay, I want to write this album as opposed to doing the covers. Was there one song that got you going where you felt like, this is something different that I want to do because like you say too, it didn't fit Def Leppard. It was, it was more of a period of time. I was, you see, I'm not a schooled pianist. I can play, but I'm not a schooled pianist. So I will throw my fingers in places where a Rick Wakeman would go, oh, you can't do that. <laughs> and I just look at it and go, well, why not? Because you can't. Well, watch. And you come up with something really, I mean, look, if it's, you know, wrong notes, fair enough. But it's like, okay, that's interesting. Um, and I, I went through about a week where I, I basically came up with Another Man's War, the music for, the, the opening track, Another Man's War. And I came up with um, the song that turned into Walking to Babylon. But I think if there's a jumping off point of like, I think I can do this. I think there is 
going to be in about three weeks time enough songs for an album because i was just fertile i really was it would be the song creatures it's this really boppy uh vaudeville very british very bowie-esque sparks-ish to a point but even they were very anglophile for a bunch of guys from la um it's just this very British song. It could only come from the head of somebody like me that grew up listening to bands like Roxy Music and Sparks and Bowie um, and Cockney Rebel. And I had to write a lyric that matched it. It's There's a Bowie song that never made the Ziggy album called Velvet Goldmine. That was almost like the blueprint for it. It's very vaudeville. It's got that old kind of cheeky chappy approach to it. And lo and behold, it's got a whistling solo, <laughs> which is not something that you were likely to ever hear on Zeppelin 4 or Hysteria. You know, so I was gonna say Def Leppard wouldn't be down for the whistling solo. Mm, probably not. No, Scorpions <laughs> did it. Roxy Music did it. John Lennon did it. There's Wait, what did I, I know the, the Lennon song? Uh, what what Scorpion song has it? Uh, Wind of Change. Okay, and I think um, Roxy Music when they covered uh, Jealous Guy. Okay. Well, that makes sense. The so, so they didn't write a whistling solo, though. They, they just they covered took, a whistling they, solo. They covered John Lennon's whistling Yeah. But it wasn't supposed to be a whistling solo. <laughs> I had this melody that I thought would be a great slide guitar part. And because I can't play slide guitar, I whistled the melody. And then I double-tracked it to make it sound a bit better. And we just kept tracking it and tracking it. Now, have you ever tried whistling when you're laughing? No. <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> and me and the engineer guy, Ronan, producer, engineer, my sound guru, um, we were just on the floor giggling because I couldn't get it right. <laughs> and eventually we did it. And it, But it lived so long in the space where the solo was going that it just became part of it. And both of us, even the guys when they came over, they would have played the guitar part when we're not taking that out. That stays, you know. That's an important question. I'd never thought about this in the history of all the music geek things I've thought about, but what, what are the best whistling solos of all time? I'm going to go Jealous Guy right then because it's, to me it's the most identifiable. There's, a, there's an old 50s song. It could have been somebody like um, Val Dunican or it could have been uh, that Australian guy. I can't remember his name. There was a song called The Gypsy Rover. That's got some stunning whistling in it. There's a there's a bunch of them. There's got to be tons, you know. I think that's a YouTube moment for later on tonight. I think, yeah. Well, not for me because I got too much other shit to do. But yeah, so I'm going to be curious about. I'll, it get, ba- I'll get back to you. On yeah, that then one, let then. me know then your favorite whistling song. I'm I'm going because right I'm now only... it's creatures for me. I'm okay. sorry. Okay, <laughs> well because I'm a Lennon guy, I'm going to go. You know, and it was such a good whistling solo that Roxy Music covered it. You can't yep. really argue. You know, we can't argue with that, can you? Yeah, but cool. I will. I will. I'm going to put you, mine ahead of yours. You're, you're going to argue for creatures. That's fair enough, you know. Well, if you ask any artist what's their favorite song they've ever written, and every single one will tell you the most recent one. Yeah, well. Yeah. yeah. I don't buy into that one, no. Sometimes, what's that say? The Seekers. Thank you, yeah. Okay. I was thinking it was um, Frank Ifield. He may have covered it too, but I'm not sure, you know. Cool. Well done. What do you want to add that we did not talk about? Uh, the album's out October the 11th. God, I keep getting mixed up. The gig, the, the gig in Nashville was on the 12th. The album's out the day before. Uh, October 11th, the first single, uh, This Is How We Roll, is number six at the moment on the media-based rock chart, which is awesome. The video was going to drop for it. The lyric video was going to drop for it on uh, the week that the album's released. And I say lyric video, it's actually a video. It's just got lyrics on it. It's a cool video shot by my friend Frank Reiner. And um, onwards and upwards, we're just going to take it as it goes, see how, it's res- how it responds, see how it's um, received. And then at some stage when somebody says, you have to come over and do American shows, <laughs> and they pave a way for us to do it, we'll be here. 
Cool. And in the meantime, you just keep going. <laughs> well, the mothership's never, you know, that thing is so big that you put the brakes on, it takes two years for it to stop. You know, so well, that's, I remember that's talking the way it works. With, uh, Joe, uh, Joe Perry about it, right? And we talked about Hollywood Vampires versus Aerosmith. And it's funny because Hollywood Vampires, that's not a small fucking band. No. When you're talking about, you know, Alice Cooper mm-hmm. and um, Johnny Depp, right? Yeah. But Joe Perry was talking about how big Aerosmith is. It's, it's, he used the example of the mothership and he's like, and that's the mothership. But then it's nice to be able to do those spontaneous gigs and all that. So, I, I you know, hopefully you get to that point because I think for a lot of artists, well, we did, it's important to have that. We, we've freedom. done, pl- you know, the first gig we ever did was opening for Mark the Hoople and that's the only reason the band exists. It was supposed to be just a 45 minute spot. And then when we got nailed in the bar during the interval by the kids that had watched it saying, are you going to record them? <laughs> and it never entered my head to do that. And then we did and lo and behold, England Rock's Number five on radio over here, Overnight Angels number one for 12 days. You know, all these figures have been thrown at me. I'm going, I think I've got another band on the go here. And then we we did some club shows. We did a festival for 30,000 people, opening for ELP in London in 2010. Uh we did a, a tour opening for Paul Rogers in arenas around the UK, which was fantastically well received. And then we did um, on the the release of the last studio album four five years ago. We did ten like five hundred seat club shows around the UK, which was just fantastic. Although well, if I had pneumonia, which I didn't know until afterwards, but um, <laughs> we had a great time, you know. So there is legs, you know. They're just much smaller legs. It's, yeah, it, it's it can't compete, and it's not supposed to. Yeah, it's supposed to be like a hobby, a fun thing, a side project, you know. But I'm not gonna just piss it off to one side quickly and say, "Oh, I'm just doing it to get these my wiggles out." I want people to hear this and go. Quality-wise, it's up there with anything he's ever done, and that—that's my own internal instincts. Going, I'm not—I—I'm I, not capable of just doing something quickly and and just to get it out. It has to be done right, which is why it's taken me five years to actually get it together because I wanted us to be able to live with it, let it breathe, do it the way it was finished. And we spent a lot of time making sure that those finished mixes were right up there with anything else that's going to be sandwiched around it when it gets played. Hey, this is Steve Baldwin. I did not lie, man. Joe Elliott, what a pleasure to have him here. Known this guy for so many years. One of the truly greats in rock and roll and such a good dude. Thanks so much for being here. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.